me go ahead and welcome you all to another one of these lunchtime RNC um, lecture series events. The next one's going to be May 6th, and it's uh, our very own Dr. Chris Tacker is going to speak on the best bang since the big one, catastrophic <laughs> volcanic eruptions, minerals, and experiments. If there's anyone here who's not receiving emails about these events and would like them, please sign up on the sheet. And now I'm going to have Vince Snyder, curator of paleontology, introduce our speaker. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Dr. Jeremy Green, who just recently got his PhD on April the 1st. Uh, no joke. Defense at NC State. Jeremy came to us from the University of Florida, um, where he started getting his interest in using microware on dentition. He started in Florida doing some papers with mastodons. Um, he came to NC State, uh, has continued that work uh, for his PhD, working with not only uh, ground sloths, the mastodons that you'll hear about today, but also involved with some of the early synapsids, dysonodons, um, that he also looked at microware and histology for. Um, so Jeremy comes from uh, University of Florida, uh, is at NC State, but his heart belongs to the Seminoles. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Vince, for that lovely introduction. Thank you all for coming today to hear me talk about teeth. I love teeth. I'm very passionate about teeth. It's the focus of my research, and uh, my research primarily, broadly, uses teeth to reconstruct diet in animals that are no longer alive today. So how can we do that? And I want to talk about two independent papers I did. One as an undergraduate, one as a graduate here at NC State. One on the mastodon and one on the ground sloth, as Vince said. So teeth have a story to tell. And that story usually involves diet and feeding ecology. Teeth are primarily used for feeding. And because they're used for feeding, we expect different dentitions in different animals to be adapted to the respective diet of that animal. For instance, we can look at the shape of teeth just generally. We look at a saber-toothed cat and see the long, elongated sabers and the carnasials are adapt adapted for processing soft meat or carnivory uh, type of diet, whereas the teeth in a deer are more adapted for grinding up vegetation. So we would say that animal would be more like a herbivore. So just looking at the teeth in these two animals, we can say that's a, probably a carnivore, that's an herbivore. But that's not enough for paleoecologists like me that want to know more about uh, the different diets. What type of carnivore? What type of herbivore? What were their lifestyle adaptations? So in order to get at that, uh, we use different analytical techniques. The one that I use that I want to talk about today is dental microware analysis. Now, dental microware refers to the microscopic scratches and pits or the scars that exist on the occlusal, that is the chewing surface, of teeth. So as teeth grind food together, particularly in mammals, and mammals have tooth-on-tooth -tooth occlusion, so as teeth are grinding food up, these microscopic wear uh, features, like scratches and pits shown, where are they? I always have trouble with laser pointers, shown here, are formed. So what we do is since these scars are formed through processing food or eating food, we can correlate different microware patterns with different diets. And we do this first for living animals because we know what living animals are eating. Then we establish that correlation. Then we can apply it as a baseline for testing hypotheses of paleo diet in extinct taxa. So that's what my research does. Now, one thing I want to talk about is uh, just to make sure everyone understands is that microware deals with what we in the microware business call the last supper effect. 
That is that turnover in microware features is very high. New features are continuously being laid down on top of old features. And as this happens, microware patterns are replaced in a period of hours to days. So we're seeing the last meal or the last several meals of animals when we're looking at microware, not a lifetime history of diet. So keep that in mind as we go uh, through the talk today. So to give you an example of how this method works, I want to talk about my research I did on the American Mastodon. Hopefully you are familiar with the American Mastodon. It's a very famous, popular, and common fossil animal from the Pleistocene of North America. It's found all across the Pleistocene in Florida. We find them here in North Carolina. They're very common up in Michigan and New York and other northern states and even out west. So with my co-authors, Gina Simprebon and Nico Salunius, and this paper was published in 2005. I did this as an undergraduate. We wanted to look at what the diet was or how microware could tell us more about the diet of Mammut Americanum, and that's a scientific name for the Mastodon. My little uh, disclaimer here is that Mastodons are not elephants, and that's a separate talk, but do not confuse Mastodon with elephants. Uh, they are closely related to elephants. Mammoths are more closely related to elephants, and you probably could consider them elephants, but Mastodons are not. There's about 60 million years of independent evolution between the two. So they are elephant-like, but they're not the same thing. So don't make that mistake. That's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> so anyway, I get, I get, I'm, not, I'm gonna get off my high horse about that, but yeah. So that's the American Mastodon. So paleodietary evidence for this animal. We have at least five, before this study, we had five independent lines of evidence that tell us about the diet or what this animal ate during life. Tooth morphology, teeth are brachydont, which means they're low crowned and they have transverse shearing ridges. And in living animals, this is an adaptation for a browsing diet. And when I say browsing, I mean like eating twigs, leaves, non-grassy plants like shrubs. Whereas a grazer would be more of an animal that consumes primarily grass, which is very abrasive. So we see a different type of teeth in grazers broadly than browsers. Also, mastodons have big, big tusks like elephants and similar to elephants, they use their tusks for stripping bark off of trees, and bark is a browsing element or is a as part of a browsing diet. Um, and we know that because we see similar wear facets on elephant tusks and mastodon tusks, and we know elephants use their tusks for stripping bark, so that's another line of evidence. Coprolites, which is fossilized dung matter. Fossilized dung that's been attributed to the mastodon in different areas of North America, including Florida and other places as New York and Missouri. All uh, mastodon dung points to a browsing diet. The dung is composed primarily of twigs and maybe different types of shrubs and fruit. Stable isotope analysis, I'm gonna stay away from talking too much about that because it's a lot of math and a lot of geochemistry, which I'm not <laughs> very keen about. But stable isotope analysis is an important independent method and that signature of the enamel on mastodon teeth also points to a browsing diet, phytoliths. Uh, and the dental calculus or the tartar on fossil teeth, we can analyze those and look at what the animal ate. So all these things point to, as I've repeated myself many times, a browsing diet. So the question we had, as you notice, microware had not been done prior to this analysis, but there have been plenty of other studies on living animals and fossil animals, and microware at this time, in the early 2000s, had been established as uh, um, a paleodietary proxy. So the question we had was, does microware support these independent lines of evidence for browsing in this animal? Can we use microware to say it's a browser, and also what else can microware tell us about the different browser or the type of browsing diet this animal had? So in order to do this, we looked at, I'll go through this quickly because this is the boring part of the talk, 23 second molars, which are M2s, in the mastodon, and we looked at enamel uh, microware, so microware features on the enamel bands, and this is important because I'm going to talk about difference between enamel and dentine, and dentine is the second part of the talk, but this band right here, these are the wear surfaces. So we're looking at enamel microware on these two bands right here in 23 second molars. Uh, we looked, that's the hypolophid, second transverse ridge. And we compared our results using the same, using um, 
We compared our results to a study that had been done by my co-authors on living animals that uses the exact same methodology. So how this method works is it's based on low magnification analysis. So molds and uh, molds are made from the second transverse ridge when we were looking at the microware. And then clear epoxy resin casts are made from those molds. And we use those casts for is this method relies on light refraction. So at 35 times magnification, I take the cast and I shine an external light source across the occlusal surface of the tooth, which makes the microware features look like that. They stand out in bold relief and we can visualize the different scratches and pits and the different scars. And I'll talk about the individual scars and the different variables I look at in a second. But we standardize, or I standardize where I'm counting uh, on the tooth by using a 0.4 by 0.4 millimeter squared standardized counting square in the microscope. Two counts are made for each tooth and those are averaged together to give an estimate of the microware signature for each specimen. I would also like to point out that doing this over the last eight years and looking at hundreds and hundreds of specimens, I am now nearsighted and have to wear glasses when I drive. So that's a caveat if you want to go into microanalysis or do a lot of microscope work. <laughs> so the different variables that I looked at, and this black box represents the standardized 0.4 by 0.4 millimeter square grid. So this is the area that I'm counting microware features in. Looked at the total number of scratches as well as the total number of pits, which are small indentations in the tooth surface. Also, the texture of scratches. Are they predominantly coarse? Are they predominantly fine? Is there a mixture of fine and coarse scratches? If we see the presence of more than four what we call large pits, as well as more than four cross scratches. Also look for the presence of features such as gouges. Gouges are very, very large pits that have irregular boundaries. It takes up most of the counting areas you see here. Looks like someone took an ice cream scoop and literally scooped out the dental surface. And finally, look for the presence of hypercore scratches, which are large troughs or trenches cut into the dental surface. So these are the variables that I'll be using that I'll be talking about throughout the rest of the talk. So this methodology, you only have to hear once. You don't have to hear it again. A common question that is asked is, how do we know, this is asked of microware scientists, including myself, uh, throughout my career, how do we know that microware patterns that we're looking at on fossil teeth are original? In extant animals, this is not much of a problem because extant teeth or teeth from living animals usually don't go through sedimentary transport and abrasion and, have to, and are buried. How does transport, contact of the sediment with the tooth, how does that affect microware? And how do we know that we're not looking when we see these scratches on a tooth surface? We're looking at the effect of a tooth maybe sitting in a river with water flowing over it and pushing grains of sand over it. How do we know that that's not what we're looking at? Well, there have been two studies that have addressed this for fossil teeth. One, King et al. in 1999, did some actualistic experiments. That is, she took some teeth and examined them through different stages of taphonomy, through different stages that were affected or, uh, what's the word, subjected to different taphonomic processes like transport. And what she found is that when these teeth are affected by those sedimentary transport, like sedimentary transport and burial, those types of processes, the microware is obliterated. It's not created. False features aren't created. That is, we don't see fake scratches in pits. We see nothing on the wear surface at all. Second study was by Tiford in 88, who suggested that microware can be mimicked. It's possible to have those false scratches created. One way we can determine whether the scratches and pits we're looking at are genuine is they should be only on the tooth wear surface. This is an example of a fossil sloth tooth. This type of tooth comes from the sloth that's mounted on the third floor. You can go and see the rematherium. But these are the transverse shearing ridges. This is where the teeth are contacting each other. That's where food is being produced. Therefore, if microware signature is original, we would only expect to see microware features here and here. We wouldn't expect to see any microware patterns in areas that weren't used in processing food. If we do, 
We reject the tooth as a precautionary measure because that tooth is likely contaminated or possibly contaminated and it's not giving us an accurate representation of diet. So that's important to keep in mind. Now here's what my co-authors had done. This is the basis in order for looking at Mastodon diet and testing hypotheses of paleo diet. We have to look at living animals and what living animals are doing in terms of microware because the present is the key to the past. So my co-authors, Salinas and Semprebon, in 2002, published a paper where they used the same methodology that I just talked about, and they looked at different ungulates. They looked at ungulate grazers, fruit browsers, and leaf browsers. And when they plotted the total number of scratches, each one of these points represents an average for a different species, like the moose, here's a tapir, and here's the horse. So this is a species average of total number of scratches and total number of pits. We see a clear differentiation between the three dietary groups. What we call these are ecomorphospaces. So that is, a fossil animal, therefore, that has a microware signature that falls into this space would be more similar to a leaf browser, a grazer we would expect to see here, and a fruit browser we'd expect to see here. So we use this as all based on living animals as our baseline for testing our hypothesis. And mastodons fell exactly where they are supposed to, within the leaf browsers. That, so mastodons are most similar in terms of looking at number of scratches and number of pits to living leaf browsers than they are to grazers or fruit browsers. And that is corroborated by those five independent lines of evidence that I already talked about. But we noticed a little bit more than that. This is just takes into account two of the variables, numbers of scratches and numbers of pits. We also noticed that features such as hypercore scratches and gouges were very common in terms of the, in the microware signature of the mastodons. There was a high proportion of these features. Now these features aren't seen in many leaf browsers. They're seen in more animals that eat more hard objects because it takes a lot of pressure, a lot of force to create these large troughs and trenches in these scooped out areas of the dental surface. So this, might, this means the microware signature that we're looking at, statistically we used a cluster analysis, which I won't show you, but a cluster analysis that, show, that looks at total similarity among all the microware features for the mastodon and compares it to the living animals that have previously been studied. Basically, we found that the mastodon has a unique microware signature. That is, the diet that it had, its specific diet, was unique compared to animals that have been studied thus far that are alive. So in terms of comparing it to ungulates, it was a browser, but it had a unique niche within the browsing regime. And we don't quite know exactly what that was, but we propose that possible sources of these hard objects that are creating these different features here are woody elements such as bark and twigs and possibly even grit, which is dirt. If any of the type of food or any of the food the mastodon is eating is covered in dirt, it's going to be ingesting that into the mouth and that could, that dirt is very abrasive, especially if it's quartz sand, for instance, and that can cause some of these coarse features that we're seeing. So the mastodon has a unique diet in terms of browsing signatures, a unique browsing diet, but what was the, what is the closest modern analog? That was our next question, is what's the closest living animal in terms of diet to the mastodon? And the closest we could find is the black, black rhinoceros, Diceros bicornis. This is a very cute picture. He's taking a little nap with his little, you can't see his prehensile lip here, but he has a prehensile lip, I mean this big fleshy lip that he uses for gathering twigs into the mouth. And also his microware feature, or microware signature is composed of a mixture of coarse and hypercore scratches and also some gouges, which is what we see in the mastodon. So we propose that mastodons occupied a similar niche to the black rhinoceros. However, it's not surprising that it's not exactly identical because the black rhino stands about yay high and the mastodon has a feeding level that is much higher. Shoulder height, mastodons were 10 to 12 feet tall. They also have a proboscis, so they are able to feed at the ground level, that's the trunk, able to feed at the ground level and also up into the trees. So they had a much wider range of feeding height that they were able to select food from. So that probably accounts for the differences that we're seeing. But in terms of microware, it supports a browsing diet for the mastodon. This is unique 
based on living ungulates that have been studied thus far. As we continue to study more and more living animals using this method, we may find a better analog for the mastodon in the future. Mastodons probably ate twigs and bark as the main elements of their diet. That's our hypothesis for what we're seeing in microware, and that's corroborated by independent lines of evidence. And the closest analog is the black rhinoceros. So that's the first study. And the first study focused on enamel microwares. You remember I was looking at microware features on the enamel shearing ridges. Now enamel microware had been well studied prior to this point because enamel refers to the hypermineralized outer layer. In humans, it's called the hardest substance in the human body. Um, and that's true for most animals as well. So it's hypermineralized on the Mohs hardness scale in terms of mineral hardness. It has a hardness of around five. The next layer down is this orthodentine layer. And it has a hardness of about three to four. So it's a magnitude lower in terms of the hardness scale. And previous studies had just focused on enamel microware. They hadn't looked on any type of microware features in dentine. That's because most vertebrates, particularly mammals that are alive today, have enamel. But what about the animals that lack enamel? Because there are animals that are alive today, such as the xenarthrins, living sloths and armadillos, as well as anteaters and other types of animals, that lose enamel in maturity. It's present as a very thin layer when the animal is very young. It wears away quickly because the teeth are ever growing in those animals and it never gets replaced. So these animals spend their lives chewing on an orthodentine surface. Microware features on orthodentine, as I already said, haven't received any attention. So we can't take, for instance, a fossil ground sloth that doesn't have enamel, look at its microware and compare it to microware features from living animals that have enamel. We can't make those comparisons because orthodentine is much softer than enamel. It's going to wear differently, different features are going to be produced. So it's an improper comparison. So we have to start from scratch and look at living animals that have living representatives and fossil representatives to try to establish that correlation between orthodentine microware and diet. And this is what my dissertation was geared towards. So I selected the xenarthrins, which is a cute little three-toed tree sloth hanging out here, kind of furrowing his brow. It looks like they prominently furrow their brow every time they're uh, looking at the camera. So, and if you want to see a real ground sloth, or real, not ground sloth, that'd be interesting, tree sloth, you can go up to the fourth floor and go to the conservatory. If you want to see a fossil ground sloth, you can go to the third floor and look at the skeleton. So I just want to talk briefly about xenarthrins, what xenarthrins uh, what that clade entails. So as I already mentioned, you have the, oh, forgot to delete that. We have the uh, living tree sloths, as well as the living anteaters. And among the extant members of this group, particularly the sloths, we have different varieties. We have very, very large ground sloths like Megatherium americanum, which is closely related to the Arematherium migrans, eomigrans, which is up on the third floor again. So really large ground sloths. We also have evidence for aquatic swimming sloths, Thalassocnus which is very interesting. And then you got anteaters here, and he's doing a little piggyback ride with his young, which is, anteaters are extremely weird. I didn't study them in my research because anteaters actually have no teeth at all. They're completely edentulous. So you also, in terms, it's besides sloths and anteaters, we also have another group, the cingulates within xenarthrins, which are armadillos. Now this includes the living armadillos, and if you didn't know, I found this on Google, uh, apparently living armadillos have a propensity for consuming alcohol. Which would <laughs> and that's a Lone Star beer from Texas, so I assume that's from a, somebody in Texas. I thought that was an interesting picture. And this not only includes the living armadillos, but also the extinct glyptodonts and pampatheres, which are the large Volkswagen-sized armored uh, animals walking around these giant club tails and fascinating animals. But anyway, I focused my research mostly on living animals, 
because we had to establish that correlation. So livings and arthrins, this is what, and this paper actually got published this week. It came out Monday, so if anybody's interested, I can send you a PDF in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. That's my plug for my own research. <laughs> but um, so I looked at, the question I was addressing here is, does a correlation exist between orthodentine microwear patterns, because remember these animals don't have enamel, and does it exist between orthodentine microwear and diet Zenarthrin. So I studied a bunch of living taxa first to establish that correlation, and then I used that data to test the hypothesis of herbivory in one ground sloth, Nothotheriops chestensis. So I had to start with the living animals first. So the living Xenarthrins can be classified into four primary dietary groups, such as the carnivore omnivores, which is included or includes armadillos, different types of armadillos. These animals are omnivorous with a tendency, tendency, excuse me, to be more carnivorous. Also insectivores which are also include armadillos, a much more diverse group. These animals eat predominantly insects. Frugivore fullivores include the two-toed sloths, Coloepus, which is the sloth we have up on the fourth floor. These animals are predominantly herbivorous. They eat a variety of leaves as well as fruit, whereas the three-toed sloths, Bradypus, are folivores, meaning they just eat foliage. That's where the name comes from. They just eat leaves, so much softer material. So the question I had, or the hypothesis I was testing, rather, is that is orthodentine microwear a quantitative indicator of feeding ecology? In other words, can we use the same methods? Can I look at microwear in these four dietary groups and differentiate one or more of them from each other? Can we use it to correlate uh, or as a proxy for diet? So briefly, I used uh, standardized tooth sampling within sloths and within armadillos. I looked at the upper second malariform in sloths and the upper sixth malariform in armadillos. I looked at 255 total specimens representing 20 living species from these five institutions and this is what made me, really made me uh, nearsighted. So here's what I found. Using the same plot, mean number of scratches versus mean number of pits, each one of these individual data points, these are color coded by the four dietary groups, represents the species average and the little symbols here are the actual species. And what I found is that the herbivores, the two-toed sloths and the three-toed sloths, are distinguished by scratch numbers, so on the x-axis here. Y-axis, there is no resolution in terms of number of pits, has no dietary diagnostic resolution. All species that were sampled were completely overlapping. But herbivores were distinguished, both groups, not only from each other, but also from this hodgepodge of armadillos, which are the carnivore omnivores and the sectivores. These two groups showed complete overlap, which is not expected, and I'll talk about that in a second, not expected based on their dietary differences. Uh, and basically, just looking at armadillos, I can't distinguish right now whether one was a carnivore, omnivore, or an insectivore, so there's more work that needs to be done here. And there's also this one weird anomaly out here, Cabasa centralis, this cute little armadillo, the hairy, actually it's called the fairy armadillo, I believe. I don't know why they call it that. But the Cabasa centralis from South America, and it has an anomalous microware signature compared to all other living animals that I sampled. It has a high number of scratches, but the scratches were more coarse than we see in folivores and also had a high number of gouges and different, the, the different signature of the microware or the microware of this species just makes it anomalous. So I don't know what's going on with this animal, but it does eat insects. And some more work needs to be done about this guy. But the big point here is that herbivores were distinguished by scratch number. So is that supported statistically? That was my next question. Now I know how much you guys love cladograms because Chris told me how everyone loves cladograms. Well, this is not a cladogram. This is a dendrogram using cluster analysis, which is a multivariate statistical test. Basically, I took all those different quantitative microwave variables, took the averages for each species, put them together, uh, or compiled them in a computer, and said, tell me who's most similar to who. So there's no a priori hypothesis here. The computer, the test, doesn't know which animals were folivorous, which animals were frugivore folivores. This just means that groups that cluster together are 
different taxa that cluster together are more similar to each other in terms of their total microware signature than to other species. So what was interesting here is that the only dietary group that was recovered was the folivores, the three-toed sloths, making them the easiest group to differentiate. Even the two-toed sloths were scattered amidst different armadillos. And of course, you know, the orange and blue, which actually is a no-no because those are gator colors. And even though I went to the University of Florida, I was probably subconscious that it should be garnet and gold because I'm a Seminole fan. But anyway, uh, yeah, I forgot about that. But um, anyway, so folivores cluster together. So they're the easiest group to differentiate. Now again, we see complete overlap in cingulate microware. So why do we see this? These one, animals are or one group of animals are eating predominantly insects. The other group of animals is eating more of an omnivorous diet with a tendency to be carnivorous. Different dietary textures, we'd expect to see differentiation in the diet. So why is there overlap? Well, the hypothesis I propose is that all cingulates, which is armadillos, cingulates are fossorial animals, meaning they dig in the ground for food. In fact, they destroy my mother's flower bed in Florida, right outside our house, and they're very, if they've ever moved to North Carolina, protect your flowers because you will find holes all throughout your yard. And I've noticed that since I've been gone, the armadillo population around our house has been steadily declining because dad's taken to getting rid of them, uh, which by, by her demand, of course, because those flowers are expensive. But anyways, these animals can be a little bit pesty, but they're pretty cute. Uh, they can, but anyway, fossorial animals that dig in the ground for food, regardless of what they're eating, the uh, omnivorous animals would be eating roots and tubers as well as small rodents. The insectivores would be eating ants, going in ant hills. Regardless of what your diet is, if you're eating food that comes from the ground, it's going to be covered in this abrasive grit. Or it's going to be covered in dirt. When we cut open an armadillo's stomach, it's generally 50% just sediment or just dirt. So what I propose is that that's what we're seeing. That's where the overlap comes from. We're seeing the effect of this dirt rather than the actual dietary texture. And that's the best explanation we have right now for that. So in summary, scratch number is the most diagnostic dietary variable for xenarthrins. And the folivores, the three-toed sloths, the easiest group to differentiate. The overlap in the armadillos supports fossorial feeding. But overall, microware can distinguish herbivorous from non-herbivorous taxa, which supports the first hypothesis that I propose, that there is a quantitative correlation between diet and microware. It is, for these orthodentine-bearing xenarthrins, it's not as specific. Within enamel microware, we can tell fruit browsers from leaf browsers from grazers. Right now, in xenarthrins, we can't do that. And that's probably because orthodentine is so much softer. But we are seeing a difference broadly between like folivorous or strictly herbivorous animals and animals that are non-herbivorous. So that's the correlation that's established right now. So the case study, this uses the ground sloth, the Shasta ground sloth, Narthotheriops shastensis, from the late Pleistocene of North America. This animal is commonly found in the Southwest and in the Southern United States. It found a lot in caves. And within these caves, particularly out in Nevada and California and uh, Texas, I think Texas, yeah, it's the next state over, in that area in the Southwest, we find them in caves. And within these caves, we find Lots of coprolytic material, coprolytes meaning fossilized dung. We don't find them in direct association with the, with the skeletal material, but the size of the dung uh, and the herbivorous, we, you know, we have independent lines of evidence to show this animal was herbivorous. The size of the dung, the composition of the dung, suggests that it belongs to the Shasta ground sloth. One, one study, Point R et al., 1998, actually took fecal mitochondrial DNA, so that is mitochondrial DNA from the dung, and actually aligned it with a mitochondrial DNA sequence taken from an orthotheriops bone, and the two matched up. So that further supports assignment of this dung to this animal. So this supports an herbivorous diet. This animal was probably a mixed feeder to a browser based on looking at the composition of the dung. Mixed feeder means eats elements of graze and browse, so grass as well as other shrubs and woody elements. 
But dental morphology independently, the shape of the teeth and the way the jaws would have moved also suggests an herbivorous diet, more of a mixed feeding to a browsing diet. So we have two independent lines of evidence here for this animal being herbivorous, which means it's a good test of the usefulness of the correlation that I already established, which is microwares correlated with herbivory. It's a good test as to whether that correlation extends to animals in the fossil record. So I tested the hypothesis that microwear patterns in Nothotheriops are most similar to extant xenarthrin herbivores rather than carnivore omnivores or insectivores. So I only, only had four teeth available at the time of this study and I hope to have a much larger sample in the future as I travel to more institutions. So using four teeth, here's what I found. These boxes again refer to the extant ecomorphospaces for xenarthrins. These four points right here represent the individual uh, averages of the four specimens, and this closed purple circle represents the mean of those four specimens. All four specimens have a scratch number, and remember pit number has no dietary diagnostic value, but all four specimens have a scratch number that is most similar to living xenarthrin folivores, and the mean is very close to this ecomorphospace. So this supports the hypothesis that my orthodontine microware can be used as a proxy for herbivory, at least, within extinct xenarthrins. Statistically, going back to our not cladogram, this is a dendrogram again, I wanted to see, does this, is this, recover, this relationship recovered in terms of total microware similarity? So I kept the same parameters and used all my extant guys or living taxa again and included my Nothotheriops data. And this time, what, it, what, it, what happened is that what we would expect, Nothotheriops clustered amidst the living folivores, meaning in terms of its total microware signature using all those variables that I talked about, Nothotheriops is more similar to living xenarthrin folivores, the three-toed sloth, than to any other species, which further supports the hypothesis that I was testing. So in conclusion, orthodentine microware is correlated with herbivory in xenarthrins. It supports the second hypothesis. Therefore, it can be a useful proxy for paleo diet, at least broadly in terms of reconstructing broad uh, patterns and broad relationships of diet and fossils in arthrins. But we need to be careful, one caveat, we need to be careful about interpreting diet, dietary composition from animals that have a fossorial signature, that is, that show uh, that abrasive grit composition in the diet because, as we already saw, armadillos can be herbivorous, insectivorous, carnivorous, they can be omnivorous, but regardless, the dirt has more of, we're seeing more of an effect of the dirt or the sediment on the microware and on the teeth than the diet. So that's the caveat to take into consideration. It's still important because we can basically look at the microware and say this animal was adapted to a fossorial or a digging lifestyle, but in terms of diet right now we can't say more. So more work needs to be done. Future directions, there are Xenarthra, you may not know this, there are only 31 living species of Xenarthrins represented today. There are over 200 recognized currently in the fossil record. Very, very, very diverse group many of which are proposed to be herbivores, like other ground sloths and glyptodonts and pamphytheres are also proposed to be herbivores based on tooth morphology, jaw biomechanics. So we can start using, potentially, and we start using this methodology to test these hypotheses of herbivory in all these different animals. And this alone will take me the rest of my career because <laughs> that's a lot of animals to look at and I'll be completely blind by that point. So thank you very much for your attention. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you have. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Trish. Do you have a report on this somewhere so we can send it to somebody who I know would be very interested? Okay. Like the actual paper? Yeah, the paper. Yeah, the report. Yeah. Yes.
diet? Not directly compared them, no. Uh, elephant diet has been independently looked at, and elephants show a microwear signature more towards grazing, which is actually what we expect. Mixed feeding to grazing signature, different than the mastodons. That's something I'd like to do in the future, is look at all of this 150 proboscidean tax I recognize in the fossil record. Start looking at the different gomphotheres and mammoths and mastodons, and looking at, particularly from the same locality, and we can look at niche differentiation and different diets of different proboscideans across time. So that, that's something that needs to, more work needs to be done on. We are from a, a, a paleontologist at the um, Buffalo Museum of Science. Oh, fantastic. And um, it, it's a very, you know, big thing and uh, they've been going for many years. They tested um, uh, mastodons and do you know Dr. Lobb? L A U B? Yeah, he is wonderful. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. I'll be. I'll be. Yes. Actually, I think he has the paper. I've met him once at one conference because he never comes to the conferences. I always want to meet him because his research is. He's one of the only people currently that's still working actively on mastodons. Um, and I gave him one of my papers, but I'll make sure he has it. We were so. 15 years before we came here doing your know, results. Mm -hmm. It was in a, a pond, near a pond, and all around it they were feeding. We had, we had to dig about three or four feet mm -hmm. down, and we were trying well, everything part of a massive. Mm -hmm. Is that the Hiscock site? She was. Byron, yeah. New in New York. Byron, New York. Oh, Byron, New York. Okay. I will make sure he has it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad somebody. somebody knows him. I can't ever. I can't ever get in touch with him whenever I've tried. But, uh, <laughs> he's a good guy. I'd love that actually. I'd love that because I think he's moved since the last address I had. But I tried to contact him. Thank you very much. Phone. <laughs> I'm shy on the phone. <laughs> I'll email him. Yes, ma'am. My question is more tied back to one of the uh, comments that you made about the growth of the teeth, mm -hmm. and uh, specifically the diet. But you mentioned that those animals that don't retain enamel as adult, uh, as adults, their teeth are grow constantly yes. throughout their lifetime. Do you have you done any, if, or encountered, if not actively researched? Um, with regard to some of the animals that are browsers that do have enamel, um, whether they also have multiple sets of teeth. I've understood from some of the things that I've read that the woolly mammoths grew multiple sets of teeth. They, you know, they wear down a set and it's another set. Will and it rotates through the jaw. Well, they have, they have six, living elephants and mastodons and, and the mammoths typically have six teeth that rotate through the jaw. So it's not necessarily different sets, it's just individual oh, teeth. Okay. The first three are the deciduous, the baby, the milk teeth. We call them deciduous premolars, and the last three are the molars. So uh, actually, and I didn't talk about this, but in the Mastodon study, we looked at not just the M2s, I didn't have time to go into that, we looked at all six microwear and all six uh, of the Mastodon teeth, and the results were very, very similar, with the exception of one variable that varied significantly between the different groups, that was gouges which probably just means that we didn't see as many gouges in the babies as we did in the adults. Probably means that the babies weren't eating as much hard food, which would make sense. They're weaning still at that point, so and on their mother's milk. So it was interesting, yeah. Dan? I have a 
microwear on, on that, that creature? No, there's one, the one study that has looked at the teeth didn't look at microwear, but did look at macro wear, uh, so from a larger scale, not magnification wise. And there are actually all these different scratches or grooves that are cut into the tooth surface, which they attribute to being the animal consuming large amounts of grit. Uh, in the teeth, which I actually don't buy based on what I found. The grit wouldn't create those long grooves. It usually completely just creates a very rugged, uh, gouged out surface. So more work needs to be done on that. What is the hypothesis uh, of what these things are eating? They're eating... They were aquatic seaweed. grazers, seaweed, yeah, is my understanding. It's such a weird animal. Very weird, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll try. Greg McDonald, I think, has the, um, the monopoly on those right now. I've got to get those from him. Yes, sir. I don't know if you spoke to this, but how many variables were you looking at? And how many went into like creating those cluster grams? All variables. There were seven total variables, the ones I gave examples of, and all of those were included in the cluster analysis. So, which is a good broader synthesis of like all the variables, who's most similar to who in terms of using all of them. So, yeah. Trish. So, I mean, to me, it's inherently obvious that mastodons and ground sloths are herbivorous. Mm -hmm. Why go through all of this? I mean, <laughs> not, not to belabor. No, 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 no. Well, it's important, it's important to understand the correlation between these features and diet because it gives us a better feeling for paleoecology, more tools available for us to look at paleoecology and feeding ecology of these different animals. So it's not just so much to say these animals were herbivorous versus not, because I think that's obvious from looking at the teeth, but as we keep doing more and more micro research, we can start to get at what type of herbivory did they actually have? Were they more browsing, grazing, and how can we use that to look at the evolution of feeding strategies, for instance, within xenarthrins, within ground sloths? You know, ground sloths weren't arboreal like the living sloths we have today, so how did diet change in the transition from being these huge lumbering animals to these really tiny, sluggish animals that hang from trees that just eat leaves, way like, you know, 40, 50 feet up? So I think that's the, law, the broad picture okay. in terms of where it can go. Yeah, that's a good question, a legitimate question. Mary tell you to ask that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Mary's always, why, why should we care? That's very, very important. Yeah. Well, off topic, did you see any evidence of devil carries? And is, are they mostly a, a, a consequence of sugar in the diet? Usually. We do see dental caries in fossil teeth. Mastodons is more commonly noted or at least talked about than in the sloths or, or armadillos that I've seen from the literature anyway. But I haven't noticed any particular caries, but there have been reports of large, like, holes, basically, little cavities within these mastodon teeth. So if they're eating too much fruit, they probably paid the price for it with all that sugar. <laughs> so you'd expect it, actually. You'd expect to, in a way, you would expect to see more in the orthodentine because it's so much softer. So in the xenarthrins, you'd almost expect to see more caries than you would in the enamel. Just a, but the turnover helps reduce the exposure time? Very possibly, yeah. It erases those caries. It creates more precise occlusion. The teeth are growing from the bottom up. So, yeah. Interesting point. Okay, yes, sir. You want to go see a lot of teeth. I do. He has them up there in the whole jaw. Uh huh. Separately. In the Buffalo Museum. I've wanted to make it there, and I haven't ever gotten there yet. They have a storage area for of all these teeth. It's fascinating. I could spend hours and hours and days and even years and <laughs> surrounded by teeth. 
That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your, for your contribution. We need people to help get those teeth out of the ground. That's one thing I don't do that much of is actually do my own field work. I usually work on museum specimens that have already been collected, so kind of a moocher, I guess. But <laughs> I need to do more field work. Maybe. Maybe, if I can afford it. Well, looks like we're done here. Um. <laughs> okay, all right. Thank you. I just, uh, this is not professional of me, but I just wanted to tell everybody how proud I am of Jeremy and his work. He's my very first PhD student to finish, and I think you'll all agree that he represents our program here in North Carolina very, very well. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's right. And just think if you had to do field work, you could have taken 12 years instead of. <laughs> <laughs> Stayed in school. These, with this economy, I'd, I'd rather be in school right now. Did you look at other animals that you know, like you know, like a beaver, you know, or anything like that 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 we know eats wood, <laughs> or, or, or other or other animals that you know eat twigs and branches from trees? That the, the some of the yeah, there is the correlation. Well, for instance, between the black rhino and some other animals like the moose and the giraffe, those are the other two animals I didn't talk about that are similar. Yeah, in terms giraffe, especially in terms of height. Yeah, and twigs. So yes, those animals show similarity. Not exactly the same, but we wouldn't expect it to be identical. Yeah, absolutely. And different textures of different wood. You know. So yeah, we do see a correlation between that, which supports what we're you know that these animals are eating mostly bark and twigs. So. I know there were so many animals that ate bark and twigs. There's a lot. Apparently, I don't know why you want to eat bark. Elephants love it. The nutrients that came to the surface mm -hmm. over time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're in the water transport area, so you're getting a lot of moisture. Yeah, that's right. They, they certainly do. <laughs> but I don't have those in my front yard. My mother would really have a fit. <laughs> very good job. Thank you. You kept the humor very good. I tried to. You did a good job. Hi. Great. I'm Jonathan. Nice oh, to meet you. Jeremy, yeah. Um, with the microwave stuff, like, can you tell, like, how specific can you tell, like, like beyond, can you tell beyond Foliwood, like, sort of like a geographic region, something's from, like, based mm, on I haven't looked at that. That's okay. actually something I want to do, is look at how right. the how it varies geographically. Right, and I I actually analyzed that, and I looked at, you know, there was one subset that had a really high scratch count, and then one subset that had a lower scratch count, but right. it, the, the average gave it this really, like, anomalous signature. Right. I looked at the, ver like, where each of those specimens came from, and they all came from different areas, two from Panama, one from Colombia, one from Brazil. Right. So it didn't match up. You know, so there's other work that needs to be done there. Because that was my first thought is, well, maybe these guys all come from one area, right. yeah. but they don't. So okay. it's, it's, you have to have a really, really, really large sample because yeah. you're dealing with that Last Supper effect. Right. And that's the thing. A sample size needs to be even bigger than what I had it. Yeah, but it seems yeah. like if you could sort of extrapolate and find out what they're eating, like it just uh -huh. yeah, some more cool applications. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Really good job. Thank you Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, I, I thought you might be interested. This is our name, Celeste and Herb Schulman. We're volunteers okay. here. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. And, uh, and we volunteer in the naturalist room and the discovery room. Okay. Today we're going to the naturalist room. This says Buffalo Museum of Science, yes. And Dr. Richard Lau. Yes. If, if at any time you contact him, uh, just mention our name. I will. 
Yeah, I will. If you want okay. any more information, not only about uh, the museum, but about Dr. Lau, um, we'd be glad to give it to you. Okay. And you can. Um, you know, they have us on file here, our address. Our okay, account. so I can look you up and, and everything. Okay. I definitely would like his email address. I don't know if you have that on, on you. Email. Uh, don't I know. may have it at home. I don't know. Okay. But, but I don't know. Okay. Uh, but, uh, That'll work. <laughs> but you know, um, and get it. I could look it up online probably too. He is okay. All right. But he's still with the dig, which is tremendous. And the other thing is, he also has taught. I'm not sure whether he's teaching now at the University of Buffalo. Okay. I met him that one time. I always look for him at the, because uh, I love his work. His work's been, I mean, he's helped. I cite him more than anybody else when I do my master on yes, research. Really? Yes. Uh, we have two books of conferences. Uh, the Green Books with the, uh, yeah, I, yeah I, the, the Hiscock site with the Hiscock, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. We have the two books. Uh -huh. Yeah. And, uh, and we're personal friends of his. Fantastic. I'm glad that, glad that there's a connection. That's great. We saw his children grow up. Oh, you did? So you've known him for a long, 15 years? Now most of them are married. Oh, yeah. But it's started in the right 1980s, okay. 1980s, you know, so uh, it goes back, and we go back a long time. We're, we're great. Yeah. When, we went, when I went to him first, he told me I was too old to dig. <laughs> Incidentally, you're, you're from Florida. I am. Do you know um, Dr. Uh, Stedman. Stedman? Yes, I know Dave David Stedman. Yeah, I know Dave yeah. Stedman. Yeah, well, he's, we he's went on a dig with him. Yeah, yeah. Because he's, he's actually, he knows... Um, Dr. Laub because oh, yeah, good they're good because his they cite paper I've seen them cited together and yeah, they right. publish papers together well, yeah um, so he's, he's the bird man <laughs> when, when we yeah when we want, wanted to find out uh, what kind of bird bone it was uh, we going, finding, uh, he found the uh, the California condor yeah in, in yeah Montana. that's right that's right that's right I remember reading that paper that was yeah. very interesting anyway. Lots of luck to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for all your comments and everything. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate that. I try. You just got your PhD? Just got it. Great. That's wonderful. Hope I get a job now. I have a grandson who's graduating next week, I guess. Same problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll make it by. But times are tight. It's still going to be hard for you. Yes. I'll, I'll get by. I'll keep doing my research regardless. So they're going to keep me on here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for this information too. Um, I'm not not paid, but uh, I'm in and out. I'm now a research associate with the museum, so I will be here more than I was than I have been since I was in school. So I'll be around. I'll, I'm sure I'll see you around. So, I love this museum. It's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Nice job, Jeremy. Thanks. Uh, not nearly as polished as my defense, but whatever. No, no, no. no. That was yeah. actually it was very perfect for this venue. This is a very informal venue. Yeah, you that's that's. Uh, a, you know, no, I didn't want to. Uh, no, stumbled over my words a bit more. But, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
That's I just awesome. kind of went with it, you yeah, know, which good. is, I need to get better at that, so. It's good, it's good, enjoyed it. Thanks. Why are you so much trouble getting another theory app, Steve? Huh? All over the place. Well, the problem was is that when I went to the one, I only had money to go to one institution, so I kind of keep that on the deal. <laughs> I had to get, that's how I had to get okay. the study published. So one institution, I want to go to the LA County Museum from the La Brea Tar Pits, because they've got tons of not theory apps. Yes. The other problem is it's either isolated Usually, I don't have that many from what I saw in like at Berkeley, they didn't have many of in the jaws. And if the teeth are isolated, they've got like very homodont dentition, so it's difficult to identify like a specific tooth when I need to do, and I didn't talk about that, but I, my other research on the standardized analysis, looking at how the macroware varies across the tooth, it varies significantly enough that it's recommended that you look at the same tooth, the same area of the tooth, which lowers your sample size, your available sample size. But that's what's necessary. They should have shitloads of skulls with teeth in them from the tar pits. They should. I just didn't ever make it to L.A. Oh, I mean, that's my thing. I want to do it this summer, actually, if I get the money. Mm -hmm. Or if I can get, some, actually, not money, I'll just pay for it myself and go there and take a day. M2, mesial facet, done. Bunch of beals, done. Yeah, that'd be great. By the way, the great. other state is uh, Arizona, not Texas. Arizona, thank you. I was sitting there going, crap, what is this? We could talk about, I was, I was about to throw out Utah. Out, you should have shouted it out, yeah, that's fine. Shout it out. Yeah, Trish is over here cutting up the whole time while I'm talking. Oh, Shut up, Trish. <laughs> You're throwing me off. <laughs> the other question I had was, why the disparity in number of pits in Novoferiops? Any hypothesis on that? No, actually, that's, that's completely normal. Long. If I had showed a graph of all of like the different, you would have seen the same pattern for even the folivores. Okay. So There's 65 pits, 20 pits, varies. Thank you. Species. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it, it not, it's just, okay. just huge amounts of overlap. And it varies, and I can't find any, right now, any pattern. But see, now that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. You know, and that might make for a great paper, because yep. maybe there's some kind of ecological difference. Maybe some of them lived in caves, and the other ones lived on the plains. I don't know. I tried to look at, uh, I want to do geographic variation, like in the nine-banded armadillo, because we have so many of those, and they're spread from, you know, northern South America all the way up through Florida. Yeah. Look at, like, you know, 30 teeth from one state and another state in different areas and see, do we see a difference? Or is it really just all the same because of this grit because mm -hmm. they do change their diet geographically and seasonally the nine-banded armadillos are in north america they're actually more carnivore omnivores which i didn't talk about but they're actually more of an omnivorous animal whereas in south america they're more insectivorous does the grit get processed or is it just oh, oh, constantly in the stomach it's oh, it, it gets out in the feces so it goes out in the feces but like the feces are, are caked in grit when you kill an armadillo and cut open its stomach 50 percent of the stomach is usually grit so it's pretty crazy I know. So I've, that's the only that's the only hypothesis I can come up with. Is like we've got to be seeing the effect of grit. I mean, grit is very like major proponent of dental wear anyway. I mean, there's all these hypotheses now about forget grass and the evolution of hypsodonty. It was grit. It was all this like dust lands, the spread of savannas, and all this grit being on vegetation, which increases dental wear, which is why hypsodonty evolved in the first place. That's one of the hypotheses out there. So I actually like that more than the grass theory. Or maybe it's probably a combination of the two, because you spread savannas, you're spreading grasslands anyway. But grit's very abrasive. I mean, quartz is a hardness of seven, and enamel's five. Quartz is going to kill your teeth. I mean, if you're just quartz chewing, seven. quartz is seven, yeah, on the Mohs scale. Mm. So. Very good. Well, job. good. Well, I'm glad everybody liked it. I was <laughs> more nervous than I should have been, probably, but whatever. Don't walk off with that. I won't. I'll see you guys later.